Well, as we start to think about Daniel, what I'd really love is if we could all just sit down in a circle and talk together. And I'd love for you to talk with me about what you think integrity means and what you think it's like to be living in this time and in this place. And I'd love for you to talk with me about what it looks like for you when you think about compromise. But we can't do that, and that's difficult. So you're just going to have to listen to me, I'm sorry to say, but perhaps we can um, investigate some of those things together. So when you're chatting with people about um, whatever these days, what is the predominant conversation that you're having? Well, if you're anything like me, people are talking about COVID, of course and the government's decisions on around how to deal with that. This week, due to our numbers, we got to open up some things, yay, and that was really exciting. Um, some people wish that there were less things opening. Some people wish that there were more things opening. Some people think that our government is managing this all quite nicely, and some people are so upset by how the government is managing it that they're talking about moving somewhere else. We live in complicated days um, where we have great disagreements about a whole variety of things. And the question I keep asking myself is, how do I live well in these days? How do I allow Jesus be the one who forms my attitudes and my actions and my responses? And I wonder, when I speak, if Jesus were here um, in my place, would he say the words that I'm saying? And if Jesus was here in our place, would he be doing the things that we're doing? I wonder. And what I want us to do is to be able to participate with the Holy Spirit so closely that we are thoroughly formed by him and that he's the one who helps us discern how to live well in Calgary in 2021, in good and helpful ways, doing what Jeremiah called the people to do of his time, which was to work for the good of the cities they found themselves in, even as aliens in a foreign land, as exiles who didn't fully belong. Well, we know from Renus's last two messages that God had been warning the people of Judah about the consequences of ignoring him. Messages that came through the prophet Jeremiah. And the word was that they were going to be conquered by Babylon. Well, if you were a good, God-fearing Jew, what kinds of conversations would you be having about this chaotic political landscape that you were living in? Do you think they were angry at their political leader? Were they afraid? Did they fervently pray the Psalms, praying that God would not send the judgment that he'd promised? You can place yourself in that story because God's word, um, though different in details from our reality, still speaks in a timeless way into the reality that we live in here and now. So it's with that in mind that we enter the story of Daniel. So if you have your Bible, feel free to turn to Daniel chapter 1 in your Bible or look it up on your device, and we're going to read from there. 
But the book begins by situating us in the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah. And as political leaders go, he was one of Judah's bad kings. He was completely disdainful of God. So rabbinical uh, tradition tells us that when he heard the scroll with the um, prophecy from Jeremiah written in it, as it was read to him, he would take his knife and he would cut it off and he would throw it into the fire. King Jehoiakim burned God's words. That's the kind of leader he was. He didn't believe God, and he wasn't interested in anything that was being said on behalf of God, and he totally thought he understood the political reality of his day. After all, they were um, paying taxes, huge amounts of taxes to Egypt, who were ruling the current world at that point in time, and though it wasn't ideal, it wasn't that bad, was it? And he just assumed that what was would continue on to be, and he had no imagination that things could change, and he had certainly no belief in God that what God had said would actually happen. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, and this is what it says. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon defeated the Egyptians. And then, on the way back to Babylon, they came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Because that's what they would do. If you conquered another nation, it was assumed that you also conquered their God. And then you took their religious sacred artifacts or symbols as a, as a picture of their God's defeat. And then you displayed them in your God's temple as a symbol that your God beat their God. Well, can you imagine the despair of the people of Judah when this happened? Well, we find as we read on that that's not all King Nebuchadnezzar took. In verse 3, And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who'd been brought to Babylon as captives. When it says they were brought to Babylon, that actually means that they were forced to walk there. And if you were wondering how far a walk it was from Jerusalem to um, Babylon, it was 1,740 kilometers. And it would have been four months of hard slogging to get from one place to the other. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, because looks mattered even back then. And he said, make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Babylon took Judah's brightest and best young men to acculturate them into a Babylonian way of thinking and being. It was the ultimate case of a country's brain drain. It, it, their very best were taken with the intent not just to teach them about Babylon, but to actually make them Babylonian. Verse 5, 
And the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. And they were trained, they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So for three years, these young men, many of them still in their teens, we suspect, would learn everything there was to learn about this great city of Babylon and its culture. They'd eat its food. They'd learn its literature. They'd benefit from its opulence, and it was opulent. What a great way to get these young men who would otherwise grow up to be leaders in their own country to forget about their God and their own culture and to assimilate, contribute to the new culture. Well, verse 6 goes on to say, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The book of Daniel doesn't tell us every person's story of exile, but it tells us the story of these four men. Verse 7, And the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel, whose name really meant Yahweh is my judge, was renamed Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious, was renamed Shadrach, which means in command of the moon god, or Marduk. Mishael, whose name means who is like Yahweh, was renamed Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah, whose name means Yahweh has helped, was renamed Abednego, servant of Nebo. So if their names originally carried deep significance to them, identifying them as followers of Yahweh, Nebuchadnezzar changed them to give these young men new identities. Names assigned by the empire that referenced Babylon's pantheon of gods, in effect telling them who they were now in an attempt to erase their former identity. Not even their names would remind them of who they'd been or where they'd come from. You know, it's interesting to me that when Daniel refers to himself throughout the whole book, he never uses his Persian name. He always refers to himself by his Hebrew name, and he's referred to 65 times by his, per- his Hebrew name and only 10 times by his Persian name. His friends end up going by their Persian names. That's how we know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You could sing the song. Um, and, uh, but here's a funny fact. In the original documents throughout the book, their names are repeatedly misspelled. And at first, biblical scholars just assumed that a scribe somewhere along the line had made a mistake. But um, when they found the oldest manuscripts, they discovered that the names had always been misspelled. And uh, it was like the author was making a subtle point. These are not their names This is not their identity, and I'm not even going to bother to spell them right. (laughs) I thought that was funny. Well, whatever their names, these young Hebrew men were exiles in a foreign culture, and their question was the same as ours. How do I live well in these times in this place? How do I be a good and productive part of where I find myself without being seduced by it? Jesus would say it this way. Be in the world, but not of it. Well, Daniel and his friends would be in the world. They would learn the language of literature from Babylon. They'd train to be a good part of the king's team, doing their 
best to be men of integrity, contributing their skills wherever they could for the good of the city. Well, I was chatting with some friends yesterday, and we were working to define that word integrity. What do you think that is? Well, I can't ask you that. That doesn't translate very well here now. But um, let me tell you what we came up with. We think um, integrity is when what you think you, what you think you believe, and what you say you believe, lines up with how you act or what you do. You're not saying one thing and doing another, but there's alignment. People who say one thing and do another, we call them hypocrites, right? So would you consider yourself a person of integrity? Are you aware that there are people watching you and how you act? And are you clear that there are people judging your God by your integrity? In the last few years, there have been some spectacular failures by some very big Christian names, pastors of mega churches, authors of books, men who traveled the world teaching people how to defend their faith. <sighs> it makes me sad. Um, men who you would have never thought would have been put under the microscope because of moral failure. And yet, there they are for the whole world to see and judge. It's painful. And people who are not Christians, they judge our God by the ones who follow him. Daniel, under the microscope of Babylon, consistently demonstrates integrity. He works hard to be a good part of Babylon where he can. And he he's recognized by the chief of staff and by the king himself as one of the best. And I want to say, could that be said of us too, wherever we find ourselves? Well, verse 8 goes on to tell us that part of Daniel's integrity was that he had actually a line that he was not willing to cross. And he would not compromise as a follower of Yahweh. So look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Huh. When I saw the word resolve, it just sort of jumped off the page at me because it made me think of all the resolutions I've made, particularly around New Year's. Do we all, can we all relate? You know, all those things you said you were going to do that you actually never did? Yikes. Uh, we all know that how hard it is to decide to resolve something and then stay true to it. But here's this remarkable young man, and even though he's separated from his family and from his culture and from his religious community, He's on his own, no one is supporting him, and no one is holding him to account. He makes a resolve. There's a lot he'll accommodate in the culture that he finds himself in. Not everything in our culture is bad, after all. But he will not do anything that he feels dishonors God. And for Daniel, he decides that that line that he cannot step over is that he will not eat the meat or drink the wine from the king's table. 
Commentators suspect that, has, that his issue was around the meat served not being kosher. For him, his spirituality was tied together with his diet. As an observant Jew, there was a list of things that he just simply would not eat. But Daniel goes way over and beyond that list of things that the law says you shouldn't eat. It says he didn't want to eat any meat or the wine from the king's table. And it's not clear why he chooses that, but it is part of his resolve to stay true to the God he follows, which is remarkable for a young teen boy who's being offered all the pleasures of that particular culture. So he asks the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable to him foods. So verse nine. Now God, who by the way is still in the story, even here in Babylon, he's not gotten left behind in Judah, just in case we weren't clear. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. This is a picture of God at work. Let's pause for a moment. Do you believe that God is here in our messy time? At work? Like truly at work? Even when it's not clear what he's doing? I think Daniel believed God was at work even as an exile in a foreign country. Verse 10, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Well, and that would be a valid concern. So Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said kind of, could we be like a test group or a focus group? Test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. And at the end of these 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. And then make your decision in light of what you see. So the attendant agreed to Daniel's request. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, we know that this isn't about diets, really, right? Well, at some level it is, because if you quit drinking wine and you just ate vegetables, you probably would lose some weight and you might actually be a little healthier. But God is not more honored when we eat vegetables. Sorry, my vegetarian friends. Uh, and nor would God have loved Daniel less or refused to use him had Daniel felt he had no option but to have eaten the king's food. This is actually not about food. This is about God honoring Daniel and his friends and their heart to stay true to him by not doing anything they felt would compromise their faith. God honored their resolve and he made them strong and healthy in ways that I think go beyond explanation. And I find it remarkable. And it also causes me to pause in my love for God. Are there things in my culture that are compromising to my faith? Do I even know what that would be? What does that look like for you and for me as followers of Jesus today? 
Well, when I was thinking about that, it actually reminded me of a book I read a very long time ago. And it's called In His Steps. It's a Christian classic by Charles Sheldon. Fascinating book. It is the first time that I am aware of where the idea of what would Jesus do shows up. So could all put on our bracelets. What would Jesus do? And so this book tells a story about a church, um, and the, the church has this crisis because at the beginning of the story, they have ill-treated a homeless man, and it stops them in their tracks when they realize what they've done, and they say to themselves, what kind of Christians are we? They are completely smitten in their consciences. So a group of six people get together and they say to themselves, for one year, that's a long time by the way, for one year we will not do anything unless we first ask the question, what would Jesus do? Yikes. And so they, then the book sets out to tell their stories. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating because it's a bit culturally and time related. So the things that they're struggling with, the questions they're asking, are maybe things that you and I aren't struggling with or wouldn't ask. One of them is an editor of a newspaper. And he um, is really struggling about whether his newspaper can advertise alcohol and cigars. I went, oh, that's fascinating. He wondered about whether or not his newspaper could report negative stories. And he really struggled with that. And he was determined that whatever he felt God would told him about that, he would do that even if the newspaper went under. And you will have to read the story to find out what happens. There's a lady who has this fantastic voice. And she, um, someone hears her sing in church and invites her to join a traveling music team who will travel the country and entertain people for money. And she is struggling. Can I use my God-given talent to entertain people and make money? And I think, oh my word, I don't, I don't know anybody who asks that question anymore, but... In 1897, that's the question somebody was struggling with. I thought that was fascinating. But her thing was, whatever I feel God calls me to do, I will not compromise that. I love her, I love her struggle. And there's a man who works for a business engaged in shady dealings, and he decides he has to speak the truth, even though he knows it'll get him fired. Back in 1897, those were the things they thought about, they struggled with, and they questioned. Different things than Daniel, different things than the Apostle Paul. So I was thinking about Paul. He's writing a letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians, well, what's their struggle? What are they wondering about in terms of compromise? They're wondering about whether or not they're allowed to eat meat that's been offered to idols. And some people are absolutely adamant, we cannot... And some people are going, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's, idols aren't real. It doesn't, doesn't matter. And Paul is helping them sort it through because oftentimes when we think, find the things that we aren't willing to um, compromise on, we want to point at everybody else and tell them they can't do that either. And that is never the point. You never see Daniel pointing his finger and going, now I don't do this and you can't do that either. If you, he doesn't do That isn't the point. The point, I believe, was Paul was saying was, whatever you do, honor God with your life. And um, that's the journey. 
Well, I have struggled all week with this question of what does it mean to honor God with my life and not to, not to compromise. And I am extremely anxious that you not hear me say that there's some external set of rules that you need to keep so God will love you more and so that you'll be a better Christian. I am not saying that, and if you hear me say that, you have misheard me. And I don't think that's what Daniel was doing. His choices were very personal. No one told him that he had to do what he did. For him, it was completely a matter of conscience. So, how do we talk about not compromising? Well, first, um, because I think it's incredibly personal, what I'm listening for is the Holy Spirit who lives in me and who nudges me about what may or may not be appropriate for me. And it might be a different nudge than you get. So one friend told me about, um, for her, it was about the whole thing of how you talk about others. You know how you open your mouth to say something, like tell a story about someone that you heard or mention some dumb or ill-advised thing that they did? And then just as you're about to say it, the Spirit nudges you and says, don't say that. Honor me with your life. Honor me with your words. And for her, gossiping is a compromise that she's not willing to make, even though it is so tempting. And she does it because she wants her life to honor God. Or perhaps it shows up in the way we speak about people that we disagree with. And that should all make us sit up and notice because these are very fractious days. And I have to ask myself, when I am about to say something about someone I disagree with, would Jesus say that? Maybe he would, I don't know. Would he say that? I got, could I ask that question? Could you ask that question? Would I be willing to hold my words or modify them because I want to honor God with my life? Or maybe for you, it's what you watch on Netflix. I oh, now I'm treading on thin ice. I remember hearing a fellow at a conference one time, we were in a small group and he was sharing about a show he was watching on Netflix, one he coined as soft porn, and he referred to it as his guilty pleasure. And he was pretty sure he shouldn't be watching it because the thoughts and pictures it put in his head, he didn't really want those there, but he just could not say no to himself. And he never forgot that story or the look on his face as he told it. For him, that show was compromise. And when he did it, when he watched it, he did not feel like his life honored God. Well, I could go on. Maybe it has to do with how you use your time. I heard a pastor tell a story this week about how he was completely addicted um, to social media. Um, he, like most of us, carried his phone in his pocket, and it was at its, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's, you're not, you never not have it, right? Where's my phone now that I've said that I always have it? It's not here. It is here. Anyway, you know how you sit down at the kitchen table, and I look around the table, and everybody sits down and puts their phone right there? Well, that was him. 
And he said, I, I came to realize that I led this completely distracted life where I couldn't really pay attention to my family or my wife because I was always checking my emails and checking my messages and answering my emails and answering my texts and seeing what was going on on Instagram until eventually he felt completely controlled by his, by his device, by his phone. And he realized that what God was calling him to was for him to have integrity, he had to put his phone away. He had to find some way to fast from his phone. And so he, he uh, is very careful about how he uses this. And he'll put it away and he drives his congregation nuts because they can't find him because he doesn't answer every text and he doesn't answer his phone and on one day a week he puts it away for 24 hours but he wants his life to honor God and for him that was his line that he was not willing to cross as a man who wanted to honor God with his life well, we live in this particular moment with these particular things that distract us or even compromise us, compromise us, makes it harder for us to be like the one we follow. That's what we're talking about. Not whether God loves you, not whether you're saved. We already know that those things are taken care of because of Jesus' amazing sacrifice on our behalf. But we are talking about allowing the Holy Spirit to form us to be like Jesus so we can reflect him wherever we, he puts us. That's why we pay attention to God. So for Daniel, compromise was about food he wouldn't eat. He made a resolve early on, which he never backed down on. And later, when it came to things that were much larger that he would need to make decisions about, things like not bowing down to the king's statue, well, he'd already practiced not compromising. And saying no to this was just one more natural step in being a person of integrity, even if it resulted in death. I thought, I was thinking about compromise and death. I was actually thinking about Thomas Cramner, who, who was killed because he wouldn't back down from his, his belief that, oh, it, anyway, I, don't, I can't even tell you his, but look up his story because his story is about a man who would not compromise and who struggled not to compromise and in the end died for his faith. It's a powerful story. To support Daniel's resolve, he developed a set of practices that he surrounded his life with, things we call holy habits. We know from his story in the book of Daniel that he daily spent time with God praying. He knew how deeply he needed to stay connected to Yahweh if he was going to live this life of integrity. We're told in here that he fasted. He stayed connected with his friends, Men who I am confident encouraged him in his faith. Do you have people in your life who encourage you in your faith journey? They are invaluable, and if you don't, then talk to Matt about joining a community group because there are people who would love to walk with you and encourage you. For Daniel and his friends, God both honored and empowered their lives. Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. 
Verse 20 says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. They had integrity. They were filled with God's spirit, and they were used by God. So let's go back to where we started. In these politically chaotic days that we are currently living in, where people are deeply divided by disagreements about a whole variety of things, how will you let Jesus form your thoughts and actions and words so they look like his? And how will you live with integrity? Will you commit to paying attention to God's spirit this week, listening for how he might prompt you so that you, in the end, look like the one you follow? Daniel and his friends would tell you, no matter how hostile the environment looks, God is here. God is at work. God will honor and use you. And Daniel would say to you, don't give up. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we long to be people like Daniel, people who love you with our hearts and souls and strengths and mind. We want to be people who um, are people of integrity so that when people look at us, they see you. And God, we know we can't do it in our own strength and we aren't interested in keeping rules. We don't think you'll love us more if we get everything right, if we will ourselves. But we think that your spirit does good things in our lives that make us more like you. So help us to listen to your spirit this week. Draw us, change us, make us like yourself. Help us to be light and salt where you put us. Help us to be in the world, but not of it. Help us not to be seduced in the ways that it's not helpful, but help us to find the good ways that we can contribute. Thank you for every person who's part of this worshiping community. I pray your blessing on them. I pray that you will help them to be people who listen to you and are changed by you. Thank you that ultimately we are loved deeply by you. I just rest in your love this morning. Thank you that we are your people. We are your sheep. We are cared for by you. In Jesus' name, amen.